You are listening to Wealth Wisdom. On this podcast, you will hear from a wide range of thinkers as they discuss what it takes to be prosperous in business, finance, and more. To see a full listing of the podcast provided by Learn Out Loud, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. This podcast is provided by Blackstone Audio. To browse over 3,000 Blackstone Audio titles, please visit www.blackstoneaudio.com. To purchase this audiobook and hundreds more titles from Blackstone Audio on CD, cassette, MP3 CD, and audio download, please visit www.learnoutloud.com blackstone. Knowledge Products presents Estate Planning and Asset Protection as part of a series of presentations on Secrets of the Great Investors, narrated by Louis Rukeyser. What did the famous rock and roller John Lennon have in common with the late crooner Bing Crosby. Well, if you compare their lifestyles or listen to their music, the answer is not much. But if you were to examine their estate plans, you'd find that in at least one aspect of their lives, they had plenty in common. Both Lennon and Crosby were quite wealthy, and each planned well for his death. They left estates that minimized death taxes, provided for heirs, reduced the chance of problems, and avoided public scrutiny. How did they do it? Here's how financial author Mark Skousen described Bing Crosby's estate. Bing Crosby knew about the so-called private will. When he passed away in late 1977, the world sorrowed, and the national press, fighting for a story, wanted to take a detailed look at his estate. How much Bing was worth? who got what, and all the intimate details of the death of the great entertainer. But the reporters went away empty-handed. There was no story, no accounting of Bing's assets and real estate, no revelation of who received what or whether any disputes had arisen. All that information was completely confidential. Yes, Bing had a will, but it wasn't available to the prying eyes of the public or the press. It was written for his heirs and close friends, his personal attorney, and a few tax officials who were prohibited from talking. Bing Crosby apparently had learned his lesson about estate planning the hard way, from the grueling experience of probating his first wife's estate. Skousen continues, When Dixie Lee Crosby died of cancer in 1948, she left an estate of $1,300,000, But the probate courts made such an affair of her will that it cost Bing over $100,000 in legal and court fees to pay for probate. When John Lennon was shot and killed by a madman in December 1980, the entire world clamored to know all the gruesome details of his death and his opulent estate. Though Lennon was worth an estimated $150 million, the world learned only that he left half of his estate to his wife, Yoko Ono. The other half was held in trust and went to undisclosed beneficiaries, many of which were thought to be charities. The will contained a provision that if any beneficiary objected or took court action, that beneficiary was to receive nothing. 
This was quite a clever way to assure that the will went uncontested. Famous and wealthy people, at least those who are financially astute or have astute advisors, have benefited tremendously from good estate planning. But there have been some sad exceptions, such as Jacqueline Onassis. When she died in May 1994, her estate became public knowledge almost immediately. Every detail of her last will and testament was splashed across major newspapers throughout the world. Millions of readers knew what property she owned, how much she left to different heirs, and what the terms were. This was especially regrettable because during her life she had closely guarded her privacy and the privacy of her children. Ironically, some simple and inexpensive planning could have put those records beyond the reach of reporters and various snoops. Many other famous people or their heirs have suffered because of poor estate planning. Groucho Marx spent the last three years of his life in and out of probate court. Eventually, he was found to be incompetent and was put under the care of the court. When actress Marilyn Monroe died in 1962, her estate was valued at $1.6 million. It took 18 long years to settle her estate, from which her heirs received only $101,000. Well over a million dollars, more than two-thirds of Marilyn Monroe's estate went to pay taxes and lawyers' fees. Such estate planning horror stories happen daily by the hundreds across the country. Yet they can be avoided by those who plan their estates carefully. Whether you're young or old, rich or poor, famous or unknown, in good or bad health, a carefully constructed estate plan can shield your assets from legal fees, lawsuits, snoops, and to some extent, the IRS. Estate planning is a complicated area in which revenue-hungry politicians change the laws frequently. However, the principles of solid estate planning have endured for decades, even centuries. William Zabel, a New York City attorney and author of The Rich Die Richer and You Can Too, traces the legal will, the most common of all estate planning documents, back to biblical times. A will is a legal document containing your wishes as to the disposition of your assets after your death. Wills are ancient. Jacob, the father of Joseph in the Bible, is thought by scholars to have made the first will. Some say Noah had a will. But as one wag asked, who were the disinterested witnesses? The oldest will, of which there is a known copy, is that of Wah, an Egyptian made in 2548 B.C. Under the code of Hammurabi in Babylonia, property, with only a few exceptions, had to pass to designated heirs on death. This was also generally true under the laws of Solon in Greece. Aristotle and Plato had wills, and under Roman law. Emperor Justinian of the Byzantine Empire, one of history's greatest lawmakers, promulgated the Justinian Code, which prescribed the first formal requirements for wills. Another popular estate planning device is the trust, in which one party, the trustee, holds legal title to property for the benefit of another, the beneficiary. Trusts also have a history extending back to antiquity. 
Attorneys Lewis Berg and Thomas Connington wrote in their book entitled Business Law that the first trusts in history appeared about 1800 B.C. However, this embryonic trust disappeared with the downfall of the Egyptian Empire and was lost until the Middle Ages, when it was revived by the famous Knights Templars. They were leading financiers of the time, and their temple in Paris was an international money market where kings and popes deposited their revenues. The Templars served as trustees and distributed the interest on investments to beneficiaries as instructed by their depositors. But in the early part of the 14th century, Philip IV of France confiscated all their wealth, burned many of the leaders at the stake, and destroyed their order. Authors Berg and Cunnington say that the real history of the trust is found in English law the only legal system that has fully developed the trust device. It started in the 13th century with the practice of uses, which was the conveyance of land to one person for the use of another person. There exists a 13th century deed by which lands were conveyed to a fefi, as he was called, to be held by him to the use of the Franciscan friars, who, by the laws of the order, could not own property. By the 15th century, this method of conveying land had become common. The trust stands out as a unique instrument in Anglo-American law. Other legal systems have somewhat similar legal tools, but they are rigid and restricted and do not begin to have the flexibility of the trust which is an instrument of great elasticity that can be used for numerous purposes. Other estate planners agree that the trust is an enormously flexible estate planning tool. According to Zabel, We do not boast about our concept of contract because in most, if not all, systems of law, there is such a concept. And in most civilized legal systems, the concept seems to be as elastic and general as it is in ours. But no other system has as flexible a tool as our trust for making dispositions of property. Trusts were used in the United States from the very beginning. Several of the founding fathers, including Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, had them. William Bingham, an owner of extensive properties in New York and Pennsylvania at the time of the Revolutionary War and a member of the Second U.S. Congress, also established a trust in his estate plan. During much of U.S. history, trusts were used almost exclusively by the rich and powerful. As Abel points out, Historically in America, families of great wealth, like the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the Fords, and the Kennedys, passed wealth down for generations without death taxes by the simple expedient of the use of family trusts. In 1916, estate planning in the U.S. became more complicated when Congress passed the federal estate tax. A look at the wills of U.S. presidents shortly after that law was passed shows a marked change in their estate planning techniques. A Florida attorney and estate planning specialist, John W. Shepard, comments, The wills of the presidents, beginning with George Washington through Calvin Coolidge, were quite simple. 
But the wills of Herbert Hoover through Lyndon Johnson were extremely complex. Why? Well, the complexities were tax-driven. The wills did more than just direct the distribution of assets to loved ones and charitable causes. They channeled the assets in ways to lessen, defer, or avoid taxes. Until the mid-1960s, sophisticated estate planning remained limited largely to the wealthy and the well-connected. For middle-class Americans, estate planning usually involved little more than having a lawyer write a will, and some didn't even do that. They simply allowed state law to decide how their hard-earned assets would be disposed of at death. Lawyers had little reason to encourage more sophisticated estate planning. They much preferred that an estate go through probate, the legal process for settling an estate. Attorneys typically receive fat fees for probating an estate. Here's how the process is described by Mary Randolph, an attorney who quit her law practice to write self-help legal books. During probate proceedings, a deceased person's will is brought to the local court. Proof must be shown that the will is authentic and was properly signed with all the formalities required by state law. If there is no valid will, the court determines who under state law stands to inherit the deceased person's property. The deceased person's property is inventoried and appraised, relatives and creditors are notified, and a notice is published in the local newspaper. Creditors make their claims and debts are paid. Eventually, commonly about a year later, the remaining property is distributed to the heirs. Mary Randolph also has some stinging criticisms of the probate system. Probate is a waste of money. The cost of probate varies widely from state to state, but probate, attorney, court, and other fees often eat up about 5% or more of the value of the property left behind at death. As a result, that much less goes to the people or charities you wanted to get it. If the estate is complicated or disputed, the fees can be even larger. For decades, middle-class Americans grudgingly paid these probate fees and estate taxes as well. Some of the wealthier folks may have done so too, though many set up trusts and foundations that avoided high fees, minimized estate taxes, and guarded privacy. Like most court records, probate records are readily available to the public. So avoiding probate also means avoiding a public record of your estate. Then in 1965, an estate planner named Norman Dacey drew angry national attention to the probate system. Dacey already was known from hundreds of appearances on radio and network television programs, such as The Today Show, The Tonight Show, and The Mike Douglas Show. Now he wrote a best-selling, self-published book, called How to Avoid Probate. In it, Dacey railed like a biblical prophet against what he saw as the evils of the probate system. In most areas of this country, the probate procedure is a scandal, a form of tribute levied by the legal profession upon the estates of its victims, both living and dead. 
The New York Herald Tribune editorially denounced the probate system in that city where, in its words, clubhouse lawyers profit to the extent of $1 million annually in fees, many taken at a large percentage from small guardianships where every dollar is needed. This corrupt system has been a fixture in America for generations. New York's famous reform mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia, called the probate court, in his words, the most expensive undertaking establishment in the world. Dacey did not mince words as he lambasted the probate system, and he blamed lawyers for the entire mess. Perhaps your estate is small, and it will be all that your widow and children can do to get by on what has been left to them. That is of no consequence. Before your family gets a penny, the probate racketeers will have exacted their legal tribute. Why isn't this disgraceful system ended, you ask? Because to end it would require legislative action, and the state legislatures of America are controlled by lawyer members who have a vested interest in continuing the system exactly as it is. Dacey's book sold in the millions. It recommended the use of living trusts to avoid probate and advised readers on ways to reduce their estate taxes. It introduced millions of middle-class Americans to advanced estate planning techniques like those already used by the wealthy. Decades after Dacey's broadside against the legal profession, he remained a controversial figure in the estate planning world. Two financial planners, Robert H. Rundy and J. Barry Zishung, disputed at least part of Dacey's diatribe in their 1994 book entitled The Common Sense Guide to Estate Planning. Dacey's premise was that probate was an evil to be avoided at all costs. We'd like to tell you why we take some exception to Mr. Dacey. Like rhetoricians down through the ages, Norman Dacey goes to excess in deploring the evils of the probate system he's trying to crack. But for all his rhetorical flourishes, Dacey's book contains prodigious scholarship. He cites scores of cases, studies, inequities, and downright thievery by lawyers and judges. Perhaps that sort of argumentative overkill was necessary during the early years of Dacey's crusade, but today it seems dated and even crude. The overwhelming majority of estate attorneys we have dealt with are competent, honest people who work hard to help their clients through a difficult time. Many estate planners acknowledge that Dacey was not entirely off-base in his early attacks on probate. According to Rundy and Zishang, Dacey was definitely on to something, even if he oversold it. In our estimation, attorneys are not the enemy, but they must be made to see that when we are clients, they are our servants, not the other way around. Unquestionably, the probate process can be arduous, time-consuming, costly, and often infuriating. In many cases, if you can allow your heirs to sidestep the process, you'll be doing them a very good deed not to mention saving them significant dollars and time. Dacey calls the probate process legal larceny and private taxation. We prefer to think of the system more magnanimously. 
Still, some in the estate planning industry, including attorneys, say that Dacey's criticisms of the legal profession remain on target. According to Mary Randolph... Probate's cost might be justified if the process really did something for families. But in most instances, there is no conflict over the estate, so there's no need to be in court. Indeed, Randolph believes the probate court is as lucrative for lawyers as it was in Dacey's time. Probate is a windfall for lawyers. It is such a profit center that they go to great lengths to secure business and to block legislative reforms that might render them superfluous. The probate windfall explains why lawyers charge so much less for wills than they do for other documents of comparable complexity. They are hoping to cash in later when the will must be probated. It is no exaggeration to say that many lawyers plan for their later years by anticipating lucrative probate cases regularly coming their way. A lawyer who accepts a probate case is almost guaranteed a nice profit for very little effort. Generally, probate entails lots of tedious paperwork, but little or no original thinking. Most of the actual work is done by legal secretaries and paralegals. In fact, more and more lawyers farm out the whole job, without telling the client, to form preparation services run by freelance paralegals. There are few court appearances, if any, and very rarely is a lawyer called on to craft a legal argument or conduct anything resembling a trial. Lawyers' fees, set by statute or local custom, often bear no relation to actual work done. Courts are supposed to keep an eye on fees, but in practice, they seldom intervene. And lawyers are almost always paid first, before the beneficiaries. Yet those who go it alone, trying to settle an estate without a lawyer, face substantial procedural roadblocks. Some people slog through probate without hiring a lawyer. But in most states, the system does nothing to encourage them. Just finding the right court can be a challenge. Depending on where you live, your will may be headed for the surrogate's court, orphan's court, circuit court, superior court, or chancery court. Fortunately, there are several easy ways to avoid probate. The most famous is the revocable living trust, popularized by Norman Dacey. The living trust is the most widely used of dozens of different types of trusts used in estate planning. The New York financial radio personality Sonny Block once described the living trust as the prime tool of estate planning today. It is nothing more than a different way of owning your property. You will hold title to everything as trustee for your own benefit and use. The result will be that you have already probated your will while you are living and you can make changes to that will anytime you wish. Nobody but your family will ever know what you own or what you did with it. You can revoke or change a living trust at any time, and it helps protect you and your estate if you become incapacitated. You can appoint someone, usually a trusted family member, as a successor trustee who is legally obligated to use the assets in the living trust for your benefit should you be unable to handle your affairs. With a living trust, a will often isn't necessary, although some attorneys recommend having a will for assets that are not in the trust. 
There are many books that describe a living trust, including some that offer fill-in-the-blank forms for writing your own living trust without a lawyer. However, most estate planners think it's wise to have an attorney draft your living trust. An attorney can help assure that the trust has all the provisions you want it to have and that no serious errors are made in the document. You may save a few dollars by doing it yourself, but you may well have less peace of mind. The fees for setting up a living trust vary, so it's wise to shop around and to ask friends or colleagues to refer you to an attorney. While a living trust is an excellent vehicle for many people, it may not be appropriate for many others. Attorney Dennis Clifford, author of Make Your Own Living Trust, warns, A basic living trust can have some drawbacks. They aren't significant to most people, but you should be aware of them before you create a living trust. One of these drawbacks, Clifford says, is the initial paperwork in transferring property to the trust. Properties that don't have a title or ownership document, books, furniture, electronics, jewelry, musical instruments or paintings, for example, require no paperwork to transfer. They can simply be listed in the trust. However, with real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, bank accounts, and motor vehicles, the title document must be changed to show that the property is owned by the living trust. As Dennis Clifford puts it, If you want to put your house into your living trust, you must prepare and sign a new deed, transferring ownership from you to your living trust. After the trust is created, you must keep written records sufficient to identify what's in and out of the trust whenever you transfer property to or from the trust. This isn't burdensome unless you're frequently transferring property in and out, which is rare. Another drawback, says Clifford, is that some states may impose transfer taxes. In most states, transfers of real estate to revocable living trusts are exempt from transfer taxes usually imposed on real estate transfers. To learn if there will be any transfer tax imposed on transfer of your real estate to your trust, contact your county tax assessor. Your county land records office, which may also be called the county recorder's office or registry of deeds, may also be able to provide you with this information. If the tax is minor, it may impose no serious burden on creating your trust. If the tax is substantial, you may decide it's too costly to place your real estate in a trust. Clifford also notes that trust real estate can be difficult to refinance. Because legal title to trust real estate is held in the name of the trustee of the living trust, not in your name as an individual, some banks, and especially title companies, may balk if you want to refinance it. They should be sufficiently reassured if you show them a copy of the trust document, which specifically gives you, as trustee, the power to borrow against trust property. A final but important drawback of the living trust is that there is no cutoff date for a creditor's claim against your estate. Clifford elaborates. Most people don't have to worry that after their death, creditors will try to collect large debts from property in their estate. In most situations, there are no massive debts. Those that exist, such as outstanding bills, taxes, and last illness and funeral expenses, can be readily paid from the deceased's property. But if you are concerned about the possibility of large claims, you may want to let your property go through probate instead of a living trust. 
If your property goes through probate, creditors have only a set amount of time to file claims against your estate. A creditor who was properly notified of the probate court proceeding cannot file a claim after the period expires, about six months in most states. 